Yeah, I was a little bit torn as to uh, what to do today. Um, and I was thinking, should I try to go to a text that would give us some vision for where we are, what we're stepping into? And God just said no to that. He's like, you guys are in a season of Lent right now. Uh, Lent being the 40 days leading up to a Good Friday, where the church historically uh, sets that time aside to prepare its heart to take in Good Friday and to prepare itself for Easter. And so we're going to stay that course. Um, And what we've been doing in this season on Sundays is we've been looking at passages, particularly from the Old Testament, that proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, uh, Paul, the New Testament writers, their Bible was the Old Testament. And they said, according to the scriptures, that Christ must suffer and die and be raised. And so we've been trying to identify what those texts are. And and today we're going to go to the book of Zechariah, which Dan Mike has already just kind of uh, put before us. Um, While you're kind of looking for that book in the Bible, and it is in the Old Testament towards the end, let me just uh, give a little background on the book of Zechariah. Uh, what we need to do is find our place in the, in the story. So, after God's people are in Egypt, they go where? For 40 years. Wilderness, desert. After the desert, where? Promised land. For how long? They're there almost a thousand years. They're put there to be God's special people in that special place where they can priest God to the world. In other words, all that God is to them, they are to be that to the world. They're loved to love. They're transformed to bring transformation. They're blessed to bless. They're set apart to save. But here's what happened. Very early on, Israel forgot God. And more importantly, she forgot her mission. And so, like Adam and Eve, she's kicked out of that special place and exiled to a place called Babylon. Now, exile is something very few of us in this room right now could even begin to understand. Immigrants understand this a little bit, what it means to lose one's homeland. Refugees, I think, understand it even more that, that loss of home. In fact, if you want to know how a Jew in biblical times felt about losing their homeland, uh, Psalm 137, I think, sums it up. By the rivers of Babylon, as exiles, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. And Zion, of course, is a name for Jerusalem. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captives asked us for songs. Sing us some songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But we said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. But here's what happened. Seventy years as refugees, God came to them and said, I want a remnant to return home. To keep the dream alive. 
I want you to rebuild Jerusalem. I want you to resettle the land. I want you to rebuild the temple. I want this dream of you being my people in my place where you priest me into all the world to be restored. 50,000 people, a small fraction of the Jews living in Babylon at this time, came back. They returned. They resettled. They restored the walls. They rebuilt the city. Much of what's same thing is going on today in Israel as people go back to their homeland. In fact, when we lived there, I, w- I often thought as I looked up at the, the Temple Mount, what would happen if today the Jews would decide to rebuild the temple there? <laughs> that would be maybe even the start to World War III. But that's what happened. As they were re- rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, they started to rebuild the temple and Of course, there was great opposition to this. And because of the opposition, uh, the people just grew weary and they they quit. That might not seem like a big deal to to us. They're still back in their land and they still can be God's people. But what you need to understand, I mean, maybe on a smaller scale, that would be like going to Florida and not seeing the sun. It's hollow. Empty without God's house. Because God's house was more than a building, but what God's house to them was, it was this symbol that God's presence is with us, that he's among us, that he walks with us. And it's in this place of discouragement that God sends this encouraging word to Zechariah, to the people. And the first thing that God reiterates in, in the book of Zechariah to his people is his, is his passionate spousal love for them. Uh, look at, listen, if you have it uh, in your Bible, Zechariah 1, look at verse 14. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I'm jealous for her. Uh, then look at verse 17. It's, God sends this promise. He says, My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I choose you. And then verse 16, right in the middle, says, And I'll return to Jerusalem. That's what God's saying. I'm going to return to you, Jerusalem. I'm going to return to you with mercy. And there my house, my house, will be rebuilt. And this is said throughout the book. In fact, it culminates uh, in in chapter 8, all these words of encouragement. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. Burning. God has this passionate, intense love for his people. He says, I'm going to return to Zion. I'm going to dwell in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called It will be called the Holy Mountain. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age, and the city streets will be filled with boys and girls once again playing there. It's powerful. In fact, even Gentiles will get in on the action. If you look at the last verse of chapter 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, 
Let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. But I love what God says about Jerusalem in chapter 2, verse 4. And he said to him, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. I will be its glory within. Oh, that got traction in my heart this week when I read it. A city without walls. I mean, think about why we have walls. We, we have walls to, to protect ourselves, to, to keep people out. And, and God's saying, but Jerusalem isn't going to have walls. It's going to be a city without walls. It, it's not going to need this man-made protection because what, if, what God says in the next verse, in verse 5, he says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within I don't have time to show you all this, but living on this side of the cross right now, we are the new Jerusalem. We are this city, this city as, as was already prayed uh, this afternoon, a, a city set on a hill. We are the city of God, and our mission is to be new Jerusalem to Grand Rapids. And our, our text says that we're to be a city without walls. I mean, you talk about a text that just oozes vision for crossroads on a day where we're moving into this space. I put myself in, in, in what I'm going to say right now, but I think so many Christians today have this fortress mentality where... We feel like we just need to wall ourselves in so we can keep that bad, awful world away. So many Christians today live in fear. Live in fear that somehow the world around us, that it might hurt us or it might hurt our kids. And so we're constantly thinking of ways of, of, of moving out of dangerous places and building thicker walls and better fortresses. I'm going to tell you something that has never, ever, ever been God's plan for his people. What God wants with his people is he wants to put them right on Main Street, right at the crossroads, where our world is in pain, where our world hurts, where our world is in chaos, and to be a people without walls, where the world can just freely enter, come right in. Who would have thought we would have come to the book of Zechariah for vision today? I certainly didn't. I think what this means is this. I, I, I think it means that we always need to be asking this question. What are the barriers that we're putting up that keep people from entering? Are there stylistic barriers? The way we do things, does it put a barrier up? Are there cultural barriers? I'm telling you, Grand Rapids is an exciting place to live right now because cultures from all over the world are moving in. 
And I want to know if we're putting barriers up, if we're removing barriers so that cultures can come in. Are there relational barriers? About a year ago, I remember Shauna Duval during our staff time, just prayed, and it stuck with me ever since. She said, I just pray that Crossroads would have the affections of Christ Jesus. And that, that, that just sounded right to me. Imagine if we could have the affections of Christ Jesus. That would remove all relational barriers. Social economic barriers. Are, do we have those in this place? I'll tell you this, Crossroads is not impressed with rich is. I almost said rich people. <laughs> We're not impressed with riches. We never have been, we never will. Racial barriers. Do we put racial barriers up? I want to know that, don't you? Look where we are right now. God put us right in the heart of Grand Rapids. Oh, that we would be a church without walls. No barriers. And that when people enter this place, when they come into this family, that they would encounter nothing other than what's in this text, the glory of God. And so that raises the question, is God here? And I, I just say, praise God for being here. It's, it's not because we're so good, it's because he's so good. But without God's presence, I'll say this, anything we are, anything we do, it will be hollow and empty and bankrupt. But that we would be a place that the closer you get into the core and the heart of this place, the more you sense and experience and see the glory and the beauty of God. I mean, we live in a world right now that seeks glory. We live in a world right now that doesn't have a clue as to where to find it. And to think that we could be a people that could emanate the glory of God, the glory of God in us, his beauty. I mean, the beauty that when it's inside of us can, can make any beast beautiful, right? It did it to me. It's done it to you. In fact, we've oftentimes told Kate, as she's been growing up, um, Kate, we don't really concern ourselves with beauty on the outside. Uh, what, what we're about in our family is beauty on the inside. And beauty on the inside comes from one place. It's nothing a person can muster. It's, it's, it's the God in us that creates this beauty. And that's God's promise to the people uh, during the time of Zechariah. You're going to be a, a city without walls. And he says, and I myself will be a, a wall of fire around it, and I will be the glory from within it. God, I just pray right now that your presence would just continue to grace us and fill us and and fill this community, God. And God, that you would continue to emanate your glory and your beauty in us and through us.
so that people could see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. I pray that in his name. Amen. Now, to be God's city is, is an awesome privilege. It's, it's, it's a privilege that also comes with massive responsibility because we're not just blessed, but we're blessed to be a blessing. We, we haven't just been transformed, but we've been transformed to participate in God's whole project to transform the world. In other words, all that God is to us, we are to be that to the world. And see, this is where Israel failed. Israel forgot her mission to the world. In fact, this is why God's fiercest judgment is always reserved for his people. Because with privilege also comes this this massive responsibility. Not just that we're God's people in God's place, but the responsibility to be God to the world. So here we are in Zechariah. God is once again replanting Israel as a special people, and he's going to put them in his special place. And so, of course, he's going to spell out again what their mission is to the world. And go to um, chapter 7, verse 8. And the word of the Lord again came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show hesed, mercy, and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. And do not plot evil against each other. That right there is a summation of Torah. And you find uh, some of these summaries throughout the Bible. Micah Micah summed up Torah when he said, uh, this is what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus summed the whole Torah up by saying, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Right here, Zechariah is summing up the Torah. This is what it is. It's administering true justice. It's showing mercy and compassion to one another. It's not oppressing the widow and the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. It's not plotting evil against each other. But listen to what God says after that. He says, but they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and they covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the Torah or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. In other words, what God's saying is, you didn't listen to me. Instead, what they did is they developed their own spirituality. And what was that? Well, just look at the chapter heading. What does your Bible say? Chapter 7. Justice and mercy, not fasting. Now again, I, I, I don't want to throw fasting under the bus because fasting is something that can serve good purposes. There's times when things in our lives need to be starved. If you have an addiction today, really the only way to deal with that addiction is to starve it. But the other side of the coin with fasting is this. We need to be careful to not scream what the Bible whispers. The Bible really says very little about fasting. In fact, the only time where God prescribes it is on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. 
It's barely a whisper. Yet the Bible screams verses 8 to 10. It's all over the Bible. And so why is there a propensity to fast? Well, I think for the same reasons that our hearts are drawn to religion. Religion is is really any form of man-made spirituality. Uh, Religion, at the end of the day, is... It's all about me, where I get to be the hero, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is all about God, where God is the hero. And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus came to put away with religion. Paul saw the dangers of religion. In Colossians 2, he says these man-made rules about not tasting things and this harsh treatment of our body. He said they look good, they sound good, but they lack power because it's a man-made religion. And see, what fasting can do is it can put all the emphasis on me. It can reduce this whole enterprise of God and me, me and God, and nothing more. While this is important, our relationship to the world is especially important to God. Yeah, God cares about you, but he loves his world. That's why in Isaiah 58, Isaiah says the same thing as they've been, again, coming up with their own man-made religion. I know this is pretty harsh, isn't it, right now, in these 40 days of Lent where some of you guys are fasting profusely from things. But we have to put it in its biblical context. Listen to what uh, the prophet Isaiah says. He says, Is this not the kind of fast I have chosen? Is it only one day for people to humble themselves? No, that's not the fast I've chosen. The kind of fasting I've chosen is to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. The kind of fasting I have chosen is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe them. I'm convinced more and more the place where we are most going to encounter God is when we walk his path and do what he instructs, when we love our neighbor. And in Matthew 25, Jesus makes it very clear that in the end, you and I are not going to be judged so much by this as much as we're going to be judged by this. Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done it to me. And every time I've read that, I've thought to myself, How can Jesus say that? That when I serve you, Richard, that I'm actually serving Jesus. That's what Jesus says. It's because Jesus meets us in this place. His presence is there when we serve and we give our life away. Francis of Assisi, he said the event that most changed him And he was someone who grew up in wealth and privilege where he was taught to abhor lepers. And one day he was on his horse and he saw a leper. And his heart all of a sudden, he reached in his pocket for a coin. And like he would sometimes do, he'd flip the coin and ride away. But this time God said, no, Francis, get off your horse. Francis got off his horse And he said, I not only took that coin and placed it in his hand, but I 
got low and I kissed him. He said, it changed me. He said, my heart was changed. And see, this is why Isaiah continues in, in Isaiah 58. He said, God says through Isaiah, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and strengthen your frame. And you will be like a well-watered garden, like Eden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. You'll raise up age-old foundations. You'll be called repair of broken walls, restores of streets with dwellings. That's the kind of fast. If you want to encounter the God of the universe, and if we want to encounter him, it has to go beyond our private spirituality of God and me and me and God. We have to get off our horse and give our lives to those in need. (laughs) Look where he's put us. Probably the most hopeful thing about the book of Zechariah. It's not the hope of a new Jerusalem. It's not the hope of a new temple and this renewed priesthood that he describes in chapter 3. It's the hope of Messiah. And Zechariah lets us know that Messiah, when he comes, he's going to be the king of the universe and he's going to make everything right. In fact, the first hints of, of Messiah and Zechariah are chapter 3, verse 8. Turn there. This is when, the Yeshua, when Yeshua, the high priest, goes into the Holy of Holies. And he's got those filthy garments and God cleanses him. And then after this whole experience of cleansing uh, Yeshua and all the priests, uh, God says this, Listen, high priest Yeshua, you and your associates seated before you, These are nothing more than symbolic of greater things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. And then listen to what uh, is said in chapter 9, verse 10. The second part of uh, of verse 10 of chapter 9. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to to river, to the utter ends of the sea. That's how great his reign's going to be. God's rule is his shalom. Shalom is going to cover the earth. But I want you to see how this great king comes to us. Look at the verse before, in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. (laughs) Not a horse. Not even a donkey. A baby donkey. See, in the Bible, horses and chariots are associated with war, but a donkey means peace, it's shalom. And it says when Messiah comes as this great king, he's going to come lowly. 
The Hebrew word there is the the word ani, which can mean either poor or afflicted. So I want you to see this picture because anyone know what day it is today? Palm Sunday. This is describing Palm Sunday. Hundreds of years before it happened. Our great king coming poor and afflicted and a baby donkey. In other words, the one through whom the universe was made, who holds the galaxies in his hand, I want you to see how he came to the world. Because it's the same way he comes to us. He comes humble. He doesn't come with pomp and circumstance. He comes poor. In fact, in my opinion, Jesus is the first person to introduce the world to true humility. And remember, Jesus shows us the face of God in the heart of God. And see, the reason why Jesus comes poor and humble is because God God loves poor and humble. It's who he is. And you see then what this does to all human pride? It just doesn't fit with God. Because it's the complete antithesis to God's character, which makes it the greatest evil in the world. Human pride. Which is why all of our self-importance, all of our self-promotion, all of our self-righteousness, all of our self-anything... It's so embarrassingly shameful. Don't you know that with God, it's not the good who are in and the bad who are out. That's not the way it is with God. With God, it's the humble who are in and the proud who are out because the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is my prayer for me. This is my prayer for my family. This is my prayer for this church. That we would be humble. Like Jesus. More than anything that anyone could say about Crossroads, can they say we're humble? Humble? I bless God for you. There's humility here. Now, consistent with all of this, Zechariah then portrays Messiah as a shepherd. And a shepherd in the Bible is a symbol of both humility and leadership. So, of course, he's going to be a shepherd. And Zechariah even goes further. He says Messiah is going to be a shepherd who cares for sheep, but not just any kind of sheep, especially those marked for slaughter and the sheep that are oppressed. Yet, Zechariah tells us that even the flock will detest him and reject him. But look at chapter 11, 12 to 13. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay as your shepherd, but you, as your rejected shepherd, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which, the, at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it to the potter at the house of the Lord. Anybody know what Jesus was valued at? 
30 pieces of silver. That's what Judas sold him for. Anybody know what Judas did with the money? He threw it into the temple. Why? He knew the text. Judas knew exactly what he was supposed to do from this text with the money. You throw it into the house of the Lord. Do you know what the temple leadership did with the money? They bought a potter's field. It's all in Matthew 27. It's fulfillment of this text. Jesus came poor. He came to be rejected. He came to be betrayed. Uh, look at 13 verse 7. Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In fact, this is the exact verse that Jesus quotes to his disciples the night of his arrest. The sheep will be struck. The verse that I want to camp out on for the rest of this sermon is what Dan Mike read to us. Turn to chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. They will grieve bitterly for him as one grieves bitterly for a firstborn son. We know all this, don't we? We know that Jesus came poor. We know that Jesus was rejected. We know that he was betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. We know that he was struck. We know that he was pierced. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Of course, this is speaking about Jews because one day their eyes are going to be open and they're going to see him and they're going to see Jesus as God's firstborn son, the Messiah, a Messiah who suffered and died, who was pierced, and they're going to mourn. But we today as Gentiles have spiritual eyes to see the Christ. So the question for us is, will we look on him whom we've pierced? Will we turn our gaze on the pierced Christ? Because I think the human race, since the time of Jesus, has done everything it can to not look on him whom we have pierced. It's too horrific. It's too repulsive. It's too reviling. It certainly doesn't fit within our politically correct world. Even Christians have sanitized the cross. I once heard a guy in this town preach, and I never heard a more brilliant sermon to set the table for the gospel in my life. And he got right to that point where I was just like, okay, bring it home. And instead he just said, what a shame it is that Jesus had to die. How tragic it is that a life like his was cut short by death. And then he said, this is what the world does with people like Jesus. They kill him. 
On a small scale, he might be right, but to say what a shame that Jesus died and that it's so tragic that his life was cut short. I mean, his whole purpose in coming to the world was to die. It was to stand in our place and die the death we deserve to die. And so many Christians, too, we want to run to the resurrection, almost bypassing the cross. As Luther said, he said, we prefer a theology of glory, of miracles and resurrection, to a theology of the cross, a theology of suffering and a crucifixion. But Paul said it. He said, we preach Christ crucified. I'll tell you why we're so uncomfortable with that. It's not so much the blood and the gore. It's the reason behind the blood and the gore. We don't want to think that we're actually that bad. That the God of the universe had to do that to save us. We want to think we're a lot better than that. Anybody ever take the time to look at Michelangelo's Pieta? Obviously, not all of us can go to Rome to look at that, but uh, you can do it by Google. I think it's uh, maybe my favorite depictions of Zechariah 12.10. Look at it. I mean, think about it. Mary, the one who loved him the most. And there she is holding him. She's looking on him who they pierced. The God of the universe became that for you. He did that for you. And really, the only appropriate response is, is the response that's in the text. It's, it's to weep. It's, it's to mourn. It's to have intense grief. In fact, this word here for, for mourn here, it means this loud, uncontrollable wailing. And what is it that, that produces this kind of mourning? It's when you realize the reason behind that. Like, we pierced him. Our sin pierced his hands. Our sin pierced his feet. It was the only way God could bring us back to himself. It was the only way he could bring us back into his family, back into our arms. He had to bear our sin. He had to take our punishment. He had to die the death that we deserved to die. When's the last time you've been cut to the heart because of your sin? When's the last time you wept and mourned? I love how uh, that whole Zechariah 13 or 12 ends. It goes right into 13 and says, On that day, the day that they pierced him, a fountain will be opened up to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from all sin 
and impurity. In fact, John's gospel is the only gospel account to give that little detail of the soldier's spear piercing Jesus' side because what is it that gushes out? A fountain of water and blood. Because what John wants us to see, it's that the piercing that produced this fountain, which is why John concludes his whole telling of the crucifixion by quoting this verse. They will look on him whom they have pierced. So I say, Christian, as we approach Good Friday, as we approach Easter, take this in. Look on him whom we've pierced. Let it humble us. Let it humiliate us. Our sin did that. But let us also remember that God was glad to do it. He loves us that much to do that, to bring us in. So it humbles us to the earth and exalts us to the skies. Let's pray. God, it's almost too good to be true. But it is true. God, if someone prayed today, I pray that this would shape our identity more than anything else. Who are we? We are a people that you so loved that you gave your only begotten son that whoever should trust him could have everlasting life with you. In fact, God, if there's anyone here in this room right now who's never entrusted their life to the gospel, I pray right now, God, that they would say, Jesus, I receive you. I take you into my life. I take hold of the cross. May we love you with everything we have. And God, may we love our neighbor as ourself. By the power of Christ in us. In your name we pray.